I will never forget February 14th, 2019. I, for those of you that don't know, February 14th is always what? Valentine's Day, but that's not why I remember it. It's because on February 14th of 2019, it had been raining through the night, and I woke up early in the morning because of the rain, and it was about 5.30, and I get up and I kind of walk towards the kitchen, and as I go towards the kitchen, I hear the noise that appears to be like a shower um, turned on, but the shower is, appeared to be coming from my garage. Now, I don't have a shower in my garage, so I thought that was strange. So I go to the garage door, I open the door, and there, pouring down from the ceiling was water, and filling and flooding my garage was water, and I immediately knew, seeing those two things, that something was wrong. These were not things that were supposed to be. There's not supposed to be a flood of water pouring down into my house and flooding my garage. So I knew just by looking at it in the moment, something was, something was wrong. It was just obvious to me. Water shouldn't be there. Water shouldn't be coming down from the ceiling. And to make a long story short, eventually discovered that the water was coming in through a conduit that hadn't been closed off. It was a conduit for a telephone line that we never put in the house that ran 200 yards up the hill. Um, and so water had poured into this hole in the ground, filled up the conduit. The conduit, the water traveled 200 yards down, up the side of my house, and then into the garage. So my garage was a mess, and, and I realized, you know, um, it's going to have to be fixed, obviously. And I tried to deal with the situation we eventually got taken care of. But... There are some things like water pouring into your garage that when you see them, you immediately know this is the way things are supposed to be. I think, though, that there are signs all around us all the time that the world is not the way that it's supposed to be. There's a brokenness that exists in our world, and it's just evident by looking at things and saying, that doesn't look right, that doesn't feel right, that just doesn't seem right, that should not be. And today, we're going to be starting a series in a book of the Bible, the book of Lamentations, a book that takes us back to look at a very specific event and a very specific time and place in the history of Israel, a time that as you look at it, you're going to say, well, that's not right. And what the book of Lamentations does is it attempts to answer the question, why is this thing that we're looking at, why is it broken? Why are we seeing what we're seeing? And the book of Lamentations is going to walk us through a process of, of telling us some things about our God, some things about God that we aren't always comfortable talking about. It's going to tell us some things about humanity, some things that we don't always like to look at. And it's going to tell us some things about our world that, listen, that we need to hear. It's going to help us begin to make sense of the brokenness that we see in the world around us and how we as the people of God should ultimately process it. Uh, just right out of the chute, let me just say, some of it's going to be really uncomfortable. Today's one of those messages that I could tell after the first hour. People were just kind of like, okay, that wasn't necessarily fun. So, so buckle up. Um, that's where we're going to go. Now, to set the context for this book, just so you can get your minds around it, we are going to be reading a historical account of an event that happened in 587 B.C. In 587 B.C., the city of Jerusalem fell. And so Lamentations is a book looking back upon that event. So what I'd like you to do is I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Lamentations. Now, uh, the first one to get there wins a prize. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, 
if you want to find the book of Lamentations, go to the middle of your Bible. It's in the Old Testament. And then just keep turning to the right till you come to the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah you'll find because it's 52 chapters. And then right after Jeremiah is the book of Lamentations. Now, we don't know who wrote the book of Lamentations. We have some pretty good guesses. One of the authors could have been Jeremiah. Um, there is in the book of Second Chronicles a reference to the prophet Jeremiah having written lamentations that were recorded for the people of God. We don't know for sure because the author of this book doesn't tell us his, his name. Um, so I'm just going to refer to the person that wrote it as the author of the book of Lamentations. So as, as you turn there, what I want you to prepare yourselves for is, is this. I want you to prepare yourself for, do I have categories for God that in my humanity, in my rational thinking, can sometimes feel uncomfortable? Or does God always have to fit exactly how I think he needs to be? I want you to be thinking about that as we dive into the book. Fortunately for us, Lamentation starts off by giving us the situation. Um, if you're taking notes, <clears throat> we're going to look at the very beginning here of the situation in Lamentations. It's spelled out for us very, very clearly what it is that's happening and what it is that the author is responding to. And so I'm going to pick up in verse 1, and I'm going to jump around a little bit. But in chapter 1, verse 1, here's what we read. How lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow has she become. She who was great among the nations, she who was a princess among the provinces, has become a slave. She weeps bitterly in the night with tears on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, she has none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They've become her enemies. Judah has gone for into exile because of affliction and hard servitude. She, now, she dwells now among the nations, but finds no rest. But her pursuers have all overtaken her. In the midst of her distress, the roads to Zion, that is the roads to the city of Jerusalem, mourned, for none come to the festival. All her gates are desolate. Her priests groan. Her virgins have been afflicted. And she herself suffers, what? Bitterly. The author of Lamentations is painting a pretty cold and bleak picture. And the picture that he's painting is of the city of Jerusalem, desolate, struck down. <clears throat> In fact, if you were to look a little bit further, <clears throat> this destruction that's come upon the city in, in chapter 2 of verse 11, it says, All her people groan as they search for bread. They trade their treasures for food and revive their strength. Oh, look, look, O oh Lord, and see, for I am despised. Verse 9 of Lamentations 2 says, Her gates have sunk into the ground. He has ruined and broken her bars. Her king and princes are among the nations. The law is no more, and her prophets find no vision from the Lord. There's absolute devastation that has come upon the city of Jerusalem. It's desolate. Its gates are broken down. Physical destruction has befallen the city. In America, we often don't have a clear image of of this kind of devastation. In the ancient world, wars between empires, they saw this all the time. The destruction that's described here was seen consistently in the ancient world. The nearest picture that I have in my mind of what this might have looked like was Nagasaki or Hiroshima. This is a picture of Nagasaki before they dropped the atom bomb. This is a picture afterwards. Would you call that desolation? 
Would you call that destruction? To get your minds around what the author of Lamentations is describing, you have to have that in your minds. You have to have a picture of a city completely torn apart. Here's another picture. I believe it's of a hospital. This is in Syria during their most recent war. This is a before and after picture. These are what the buildings looked like. There was uninhabitable spaces. That's what had happened to Jerusalem in 587 when the city was destroyed. When you read Lamentations, you don't just read of the physical destruction experienced by the city. Uh, Go back again to verse 11 of chapter 1. It says, All her people grown as they search for bread. They trade their treasures for food to revive their strength. Look, O Lord, and see, for I am despised. They're actually taking things that are of great value to them, their treasures, and they're giving them up just so that they have something to eat. Verse 10. The elders of the daughters of Zion sit on the ground in silence. They have thrown dust on their heads and put on sackcloth. The young women of Jerusalem have bowed their heads to the ground. Verse 11. My eyes are spent with weeping. My stomach churns, my bile is poured out. I'm literally vomiting to the ground because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. And here's why. Because infants and babies faint in the city. The destruction wasn't just physical. It had a personal cost. Verse 12, it says what's happened to those babies and those infants. They cry to their mothers, where is bread and wine, as they faint like a wounded man in the streets of the city, as their life is poured out on their mother's bosom. What can I say for you? To what compare you, O daughter of Jerusalem? What can I liken to you that I may comfort you, O virgin daughter of Zion? For your ruin is vast as the seas. Who can heal you? Happy Sunday morning. The situation in Lamentations is spelled out in chapters 1 and 2 is a very simple situation, at least in description. The situation is a city and a people in ruin. That's what we're entering into. That's the context for all that we're going to read. A city and a people in absolute ruin. The author of the book is lamenting in these verses. He's crying out over what he sees before him and what he sees is this once great and glorious city. Its walls strong, its temple beautiful, and it's no more. And not only that, its people are decimated. They've been decimated by starvation. Some had been carried off into exile. Those who were left were so weak, and yet they were left to pick up the pieces. Now, as we look upon Jerusalem, as we see it there in its desolation, like me walking into my garage and seeing water everywhere, knowing something's not right, it begs the question, what's the reason for the ruin? What's the reason for the ruin? Is there an answer to this question? How did this once glorious city end up like this? How could the people of God, the Jews, who were the promised people, the people that God had taken and delivered out of Egypt, brought into the promised land, dwelt with them, how did they all of a sudden get turned over and face this kind of devastation? Is there an answer to that question? Well, if you and I were historians looking from the outside in on the event, because this was a historical event, we have record of it, archaeological record, we would say a couple of things. You see, the first three kings of Israel, Saul, 
David, and Solomon. Each king progressively strengthened the nation. And when I say they strengthened the nation, it was God blessing those kings. So that by the time of King Solomon, Israel is a force on the world stage, and, and it is a true glory. But right after King Solomon, in 931, when he dies, the kingdom is split in two. You have the kingdom of Israel in the north. You have Judah in the south. And this division of the nation is not a good thing in the eyes of God. In fact, in the eyes of God, this is, this is horrible because God had said, you are my people collectively, not separately. And yet they're divided into these two different nations. And when they divided, they were immediately weakened. And the nations around them saw that they were weakened. And in the north, there was the kingdom of Assyria. And Assyria saw the weakness of the nation of Israel in the north, and they attacked in the 700th century, they attacked and ultimately they carried off exiles from Israel back to Assyria. Judah, the kingdom that remained in the south, they saw what the Assyrians had done to Israel in the north and they said, we better be smart. And so they called upon the name of the Lord to watch over them and protect them. Is that what they did? No. Instead of going to the Lord, turning to him, they looked at the two nations that were the biggest threat. Babylon was in the east. Egypt was in the south. Egypt was closer and they thought, man, Egypt's closer. Let's side with the Babylonians. They can help us out. They're further away, so they're really not going to you know, mess with us too much. So they sided with the Babylonians. And they said, we'll become a vassal state, which means we'll pay you taxes and we'll submit to your ultimate rule. We can still be autonomous, but we have to follow you into battle if you need us and those kind of things. And so they joined up with a pagan nation rather than trusting in God. After a few years they began to think to themselves, Babylon doesn't look as strong as it once did. And so they got it in their minds that Babylon was weakening, Egypt was getting stronger, and so they said, you know what, we're going to hitch our pony to Egypt. So what they did was they broke trust with Babylon without telling them, and they agreed to work with the Egyptians. Well, guess what? Babylon wasn't getting weaker. In the plan of God, Babylon was only getting stronger. And when Nebuchadnezzar found out that Israel had broken trust, he was royally ticked off. And what you see in 587 is King Nebuchadnezzar, the king in the book of Daniel that we've read about, coming with full force against Jerusalem. And he comes against Israel, and he comes upon Jerusalem, and he decides, instead of just busting with his army into the city, he does something that worked for him with a lot of other cities. He lays siege to the city of Jerusalem. Now, to lay siege to a city is not something we're probably very familiar with. We're familiar with like shock and awe, you know, just bomb them and go on in. Back then what they would do is they would surround a city with their army. And what would happen is with the city surrounded, the, the atrocious thing about a siege was when it started, whatever resources you had in the city when it started were all the resources you would have as long as the siege continued. Really, the purpose of a siege was to starve out the people in the city, to get them so weak that when you eventually did go in, they couldn't put up a fight. And that's what happened in Jerusalem. For a year, he laid siege to the city. And it got to the point, as we see the author of Lamentations lamenting, that children were fainting in the streets because they did not have food. It got so bad that eventually, we will read later, that mothers would actually eat their own children. They resorted to cannibalism. This isn't the only time this has ever happened in history. Sieges, that was often the outcome. Cannibalism became the best option. 
And so from the outside looking in, we would say, well, here's the reason for the ruin. It was because Babylon was stronger and the rulers in Judah had made dumb mistakes. That was the reason for the ruin. But that's not the reason that the author of Lamentation gives. Oh, Israel, Jerusalem, you didn't come to ruin because you made unwise decisions, because Nebuchadnezzar was stronger. In fact, it's in verse 5 of chapter 1 that we get the first indication of the why of the ruin. Look at it with me. Her foes have become the head. Her enemies prosper. Why? Because the Lord has afflicted her. Why? For the multitude of her transgressions. That right there is the reason for the ruin. The author of Lamentation says you don't have to guess at it. You don't have to think that Nebuchadnezzar was stronger. You don't have to think it was because they made bad choices. The reason for the ruin, as the rest of Lamentations 1 and 2 is going to make abundantly clear, is very simply this. God's people engaged in unrepentant sin, and God does not let unrepentant sin go unpunished. God's people engaged in unrepentant sin. They transgressed against God, not once. This wasn't just like a one-off. <clears throat> they engaged in continual sin against the Lord. They did not turn from it, and so God eventually brought his just punishment and judgment against them. Just to show you this to be the case, look at verse 8. You see, sometimes there's suffering and pain in our lives, that we do not understand. Sometimes there's suffering and pain that's unexplainable, that we can't make sense of. This is not one of those times. This suffering, this devastation, this pain is clearly tied to the sin of the people. Verse 8, Jerusalem sinned grievously, therefore she became filthy. Verse 9, her uncleanness was in her skirts. She took no thought of her future. Therefore, her fall is terrible. She has no comforter. Verse 18, the Lord is in the right, for I have rebelled against his word. Verse 20, look, O Lord, for I am in distress. My stomach churns. My heart is wrung within me because I have been what? Very rebellious. Verse 22, let all their evil doing come before you and deal with them as you have dealt with me because of all my transgressions. Over and over and over, this writer of Lamentation says, it should be so clear, it should be so apparent. You turned away from the word of God, you turned away from God, and so you are receiving judgment because of that. All this suffering all of this pain is for this very reason. And as the author laments and cries out over what he sees, he makes it abundantly clear that they are by no means guiltless or they're innocent bystanders. See, what the author of Lamentation knows is that God had said to the people, this is exactly what would one day happen to them if they remained in this place. See, it can seem like maybe God's being harsh. Maybe God's being mean here to bring these things about. But look at Leviticus 26. If you have your Bibles, I would encourage you to turn to Leviticus 26. That baptism water was cold. My nose is running. 
Leviticus 26. Starting in verse 13. God's delivered Israel out of Egypt. He's bringing them into the promised land. He's laying forth for them his word. He's saying, if you obey me, all's going to go well with you. But then he comes to verse 13 and he says, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt that you should not be their slaves. And I've broken the bars of your yoke and I made you walk erect. Look at all that I've done for you. But if you will not listen to me and will not do all these commandments, if you spurn my statutes, if your soul abhors my rules, so that you will not do my commandments, but break my covenant, then I will do this to you. I will visit you with panic, with wasting disease and fever that consume the eyes and make the heart ache. And you shall sow your seed in vain, for your enemies shall eat it. What does God say? I'm going to do this. What am I going to do? I'm going to bring upon you desolation and disease if you turn from my word. But then look down at verse 27. In Leviticus, hundreds of years before these events ever take place, he tells them, verse 27, but if in spite of this you will not listen to me but walk contrary to me, then I will walk contrary to you in fury and I myself will discipline you sevenfold for your sin. You shall eat the flesh of your sons, and you shall eat the flesh of your daughters. And I will destroy your high places and cut, you de- cut down your incense altars and cast your dead bodies upon the dead bodies of your idols, and my soul will abhor you. And I will lay your cities in waste and will make your sanctuaries desolate, and I will not smell your pleasing incense and aroma. And I myself will devastate the land so that your enemies who settle in it will be appalled at it. And I will scatter you among the nations and I will unsheath the sword after you and your land shall be a desolation and your cities shall be a waste. Everything that God said would come upon his people if they turned from him, if they did not seek to honor him, happened in 587. And lest we think, this is only going to get worse before it gets better. It's so good. Lest we think that God wasn't really serious and that God really wasn't the one who was bringing that judgment against them. Jeremiah goes out of his way, or the author of Lamentations, I should say, goes out of his way to show us that everything that Israel experienced came directly from God. See, you might look at it and you might say, I get that they were unrepentant and I get that they were facing judgment, but was God really the one behind us? Was God really the one who was bringing this judgment? Listen to these verses. I'm going to fly through this. Starting in verse 12. He says, Is it nothing to you, all you who pass by? Look and see if there is any sorrow like my sorrow, which was brought upon me, How? Which the Lord inflicted on the day of his fierce anger. From on high, verse 13, he sent fire into my bones and he made it descend. Verse 14, the Lord gave me into the hands of those whom I cannot withstand. Verse 15, the Lord has trodden as in a winepress the virgin daughter of Judah. Verse 1 of chapter 2, how the Lord in his anger has set the daughter of Zion under a cloud. Verse 2, the Lord has swallowed up with 
without mercy all the inhabitants of Jacob. Verse 3, he has cut down in fierce anger all the mighty of Israel. Verse 4, he has bent his bow like an enemy. Over and over and over again, the writer wants us to know, listen very clearly, God is the one who visited all of this upon Israel. And God was not wrong in doing it, as we're going to see in just a moment. The people had rebelled against him. And here's the craziest thing of all to me, is that God, for years, had warned them of this time. They had the warning of Leviticus hundreds and hundreds of years before any of this took place. But they also had the warning of the prophet Jeremiah. In fact, in this very generation, when these things happened, there was a guy who was raised up, Jeremiah. He was commissioned. His whole life was given to one task, to warn the people about what would happen if they didn't turn from their sins. That was all he was called to preach. That's all that he was called to proclaim to the people. Those 52 chapters in Jeremiah are all a record of Jeremiah saying, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming. Turn, repent, turn, repent. There's still time. It's coming. And yet the people of God would not do it. Church, these verses are clear. In this context, in this time, all the pain, all the suffering that they experienced was because they lived in unrepentant sin. Are you tracking with me? I want to be very clear at this point before we go any further. And I'm going to say it more than once. Not all of the suffering you experience in your life can be traced back to one specific sin or specific unrepentant sin. That is not the message here. The message here was there was specific sin of which they were called to repent and they didn't, and so God visited his judgment upon them. But what I will say, and I'm going to say it again in just a moment, is that all sin does, ex- or all suffering does exist in this world because of sin. There was once a time where there was no suffering. And so while we can't always make sense of suffering, sometimes this story is telling us sometimes you can. Sometimes judgment comes because we're in unrepentant sin. Now as we consider this, I want us to think, well, what are the takeaways for us What about for us as a church? Like, I get that this happened to Israel. I get that they didn't repent and they experienced suffering because of it. But is there any kind of a message for us in the midst of this? What are we supposed to think about reading of something so atrocious, something so sad? Well, Paul in the book of Romans, in Romans 15, verse 4, he wrote these words. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through in Endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. So at the end of the day, this atrocious thing that took place in Israel was written for our instruction, but also that as we hear this, it is to instruct us in such a way that we ourselves might have hope. And you're saying, Dave, how do we as a people find hope in a story that tells us that God punishes unrepentant sinners with judgment? I have no idea. Amen. Praise the Lord. Let's go. No. That's not where we're going to end today. I want to give us a couple of takeaways. The first is this. How are we to think about what we've just read? As the people of God, first and foremost, we always must remember, God is always in control. One of the messages of all of this is, God is always in control. See, we need to hear this as we read a story 
that tells us of such devastation and just destruction. Can you imagine if you were there in Jerusalem and you're like looking around the city? Walls have collapsed. Buildings are desolate. Gates are torn down. It would have looked like chaos. It would have been ruin. And when we look at chaos and ruin in the world sometimes, we can look at what we can say, this doesn't make any sense. God doesn't seem to be in this at all. How am, I to, how am I to think about this? In this situation, the authors wanted us to see, hey, listen, if you looked at the, the destruction, there would appear to be rhyme and reason to it. But in reality, God was in control. God was in control. He was not absent. He was not just sitting on a cloud, looking off into the distance, picking daisies. In fact, God had an intricate hand in everything that was playing out. Now, that can make us a little uncomfortable. I'm going to be honest with you. Moms eating babies. People fainting in the streets. God can begin to seem a little bit harsh, a little bit severe in the midst of all of this. From a human perspective, like if you don't feel that, eh, there might be something wrong with you. Because in our humanity, we would look at this and we would have to say, something feels wrong. But is God wrong? Is God mean? Is, is he being unjust? Before we get to that, though, we have to ask ourselves, is God, though, in control? Is he in control? The author says, yes, he is. So he's not absent. His sovereignty is over all of that. And here's why that should actually be a comfort to us in a place of hope. During the COVID pandemic, there was one industry that saw <clears throat> its profits soar. And it was an industry that really typically doesn't see profits soar ever. It was the puzzle industry. Did you know that? <laughs> During the lockdown, people bought a lot of puzzles. Now, you might say it was because people had a lot of time to put puzzles together. The editor of the crossword puzzle in the New York Times disagrees with that. He says one of the reasons that people like puzzles, and puzzles specifically during times of crisis, is because think about when you get a puzzle. You lay out all those pieces and it's chaos, right? But then what do you begin to do with the puzzle? You know that as you look at the chaos, it will ultimately be put together, right? That there's a plan and a purpose with all of those pieces. <clears throat> and one of the things that drew people to do puzzles is because while there was so much in the world that people could not control, what could they control? A puzzle. To take the time and to edge it out and then to put it all together. Church, Lamentations is saying, when there is suffering and pain and desolation and you can't make sense of it, one of the things you must know is God's not absent. God is in control. And sometimes we have the revelation of why things are happening the way that they're happening. This is a story that makes it abundantly clear that what was happening was happening for a very specific reason. Church, God is in control. And not only is it he in control, but here's the truth of the matter. He is completely just in what he's doing. Did you notice in Lamentations 1.18, I had read this already. Look at what the author of Lamentations says about God concerning all that God is doing. The Lord is in the what? Right. The Lord is in the right. You might look at what's happening and you might say, this seems mean, this seems harsh. The punishment seems too severe. 
the author of Lamentations says, Sto- whoa, stop. I'm the one living it. I'm the one experiencing it, and I'm telling you, I find no fault in him. Why? For I have rebelled against his word. Think about what he's saying there for a minute. Think about how that changes the perspective of our eyes and of our hearts. Because what must God be like that the author of Lamentations can come and say he's not wrong for what he's doing? Not simply what must God be like, but how horrible must sin be that when the author of Lamentations looks at everything that's happening, says, yep, that sounds about right. You see, there's two things that I think that the author of Lamentations gives as a justification for why God is in the right. Number one, and this is in your notes, God is incredibly patient with sinners. Do you know that? (laughs) Do you believe that? See, we look at what has happened to Israel in its devastation, we say, my goodness, that is such a harsh punishment. He is being so severe with them. But do you know how incredibly patient he has been with them? You see, when the kingdom of Israel divided in two, if you remember, I said that was in 931. The first time that Israel blatantly broke off from God in a very public way and did the thing that God said that they shouldn't do when they divided into two kingdoms was in 931. I just told you that Jerusalem didn't fall until 587. 344 years went by before the devastation came upon the nation. Have you had to wait 344 years for anything? I can't be patient for 344 seconds. And yet Israel during that time had prophet after prophet coming and warning them, you're sinning, turn, sinning, turn, sinning, turn back to God, repent of your ways. And yet they fell back into it generation after generation after generation. And God bore up with them for 344 years. Church, if you can say one thing about our God, he's just, he's holy, but man, you better believe he's patient. So so patient. I could just stop here and ask a question. Do you treat others with the patience that God has treated you? (laughs) I said a few weeks ago, we should be the most humble people on earth when we consider what God has endured from us. But there's a second reason why the author of Lamentation says, yeah, so um, God's in the right. Not just because he was patient long enough with everybody, but he was also in the right because sin is far worse than we think it is. If there's one thing that stood out to me as I studied this week, chapters 1 and 2, that I believe that God wants us to hear this morning, it is that sin is far worse than we think it is. And you know why I say that? How bad must sin be? What kind of an evil must sin be that God cannot be considered by the author of Lamentations too harsh for responding to the sin of Israel the way he did. How bad must sin be that to destroy a city, take a people into exile, is not considered wrong, but is actually considered just? Stop and consider that for a moment. Do we think about rebellion against God as severely 
as God sees it. This is a story that says, if you don't have a category in your life that sees sin as so heinous that for God to bring about a judgment where people are dying in the streets and overtaken by a foreign king is not considered too severe, then you don't have a God who's holy enough. In fact, you and I already know in our rational minds how we evaluate whether or not something is just that evil or just that severe. There are two things that you and I do every day that help us understand how bad something actually is. The first thing is that we evaluate, well, what are the consequences of it? How bad is something? That's something, that, a question that we'd ask. We'd say, well, what's the outcome of it? This story tells us sin is so bad that it leads to suffering. Sin never leads to life. Sin leads to suffering. This is how bad sin is, that if you engage in it, you forsake life for death. You forsake joy for sorrow. That's how bad sin is. Look at the consequence. It always leads to suffering. The sneaky thing about sin is that suffering doesn't always come right away. Have you ever had that experience in your life where you did the thing you know that you shouldn't have done? You disobeyed and you didn't get caught the first time. You got away with it. And so you're like, oh, all right, well, uh, let's try that again. And it wasn't the first time, it wasn't the second time, but it builds upon itself, and eventually you're caught. And there's a suffering that comes. Listen, <clears throat> I said it earlier, all sin produces suffering. Suffering is a direct result of sin. We can't always know for sure. <coughs> we can't always know for sure what sin caused the specific suffering that we're engaging in. Like, is my suffering a direct consequence of sin? We can't always know that. But there are times that we can. And sometimes what God does is he brings suffering into our lives for the expressed purpose of correcting us, of disciplining us. We see that in the book of Hebrews. But sin is such an evil that when you engage in it, you can guarantee the end result of it's going to be suffering. But here's my last point on that. You want to know how bad sin is? Sin is so bad that it can only be atoned for. It can only be undone by death. Sin is so bad, sin is such an evil, that the only way that it can be undone is by death. For the wages of sin is what? Death. Death is the only way that sin can be undone. Now you might say to yourself, ah, all right, but I'm still trying to embrace the se severity of it. Consider this statement for a moment. Sin is such an evil that in order for it <clears throat> to be overcome, God had to die. You want to know ultimately how bad sin is and how God is not unjust for punishing Israel for their unrepentant sin the way that he did? For sin to ultimately be overcome, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, had to die. You want to know the monumental weight of sin, how serious it is? God had to die. It's the only way that it could be overcome was if God died. Have you ever really considered that? 
every sin you and I have committed, the big ones, the small ones, at least in our eyes, are all equal because God is so holy that the only way that he can deal with sin is to punish it by death. And the only way that we will not experience that punishment is if God dies for us. Such a light message this Sunday, isn't it? (laughs) But it leads me to say this. Out of all of these takeaways, what is God wanting to bring to our eyes this morning? Here it is. Take sin seriously. Take sin seriously. We're on this side of the cross of Jesus Christ. We can look back upon what happened to Israel, and we can look back upon that. And Paul says whatever was written in the past was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. And the one thing you and I must consider when we look back upon the nation of Israel and their sin is to see a God who is holy, a God who takes unrepentant sin seriously. He takes it so seriously that ultimately we read that the judgment against sin is not just a temporary destruction of a city and being cast off into exile. It's what those little kids said as they got in the baptism water. Did you hear what a number of them said? They all said the same thing. I've trusted in Jesus Christ, my Lord and Savior, because I know that without him, I will experience eternal judgment. Do you take sin as seriously as God takes it? One of the ways that you demonstrate that you understand the depths of sin is today repenting and turning from your sin. I'm under no illusion that every single person here truly sees himself as a sinner in need of a Savior. And you should see a story like this and you could say, have I done what the author did and rebelled against the Word of God? Do I see him as my God? Have I walked in his ways? Because if I haven't, the only way to avoid a judgment far worse than the judgment recorded here is to repent and to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And here's the hope. If we turn from our sins and we turn to God, you will be what? Saved. But church, that's not just a message for those who have not yet trusted in Christ. If this is you, if you haven't turned to him, turn to him today and believe. Profess Christ as Savior. But church, what about us? Today's message is supposed to be like the prophet Jeremiah coming to you and to me and saying, is there any sin in my life that I'm playing around with that I'm not taking seriously, that I'm not confessing and bringing to the Lord, that I'm dabbling in because I don't think it's that big of a deal. Sin has consequences. Jesus has freed you from a life enslaved to sin. Why would you play around with it at all? He put a new heart in you. He took your heart of stone and made it a heart of flesh. Don't give back in, the author of Hebrews says, to the former ways. Because guess what? The Lord disciplines those he loves. You know how you avoid the Lord's discipline? Repent, turn from sin, confess it to the Lord, know his forgiveness, and then proclaim to others they need a Savior and only Jesus can save. Let's pray. Lord, these things, as we consider them this morning, they're not light. They are heavy because your word at times presents things in this way. Lord, if there's one thing that this generation needs, that all of our hearts need, 
is that knowledge that sin is a serious offense to you. It's so serious that Jesus Christ had to die. God, you had to give your life for us. And so I just pray. I pray for my church family. I pray that if there's anyone in sin today that they're playing around with, that they're not taking seriously, that this would warn them. Lord, to not try your patience, but to instead instead embrace your forgiveness. And that if there's anyone here today who understands themselves to be a sinner in need of a Savior, Lord, I would ask, if that's you here today, all you have to say is, Lord, I recognize that in my sin I cannot save myself. I recognize that I deserve your judgment. But, Lord, I believe that Jesus took that punishment upon himself. And so my hope is not in the works that I've done, but in the work of Jesus Christ. If you pray that today, then the offer of salvation is there for you. And so, Lord, hear the prayers of your people. Minister to our hearts, we pray in Christ's name. And all God's people said, amen and amen.